Welcome to the new Fixing Healthcare podcast series, Diving Deep. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Core, also the host of the Popular New Books of Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was a CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits from his books go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website at robertperlmd.com. In this episode of Diving Deep, I plan to focus on two of the world's tech giants, Amazon and Apple, and the impact each is likely to have on healthcare. Then I want to return to the three mega forces we discussed in our last Diving Deep episode and the solutions we promised listeners we'd talk about in this one. I know they'll be surprised how inefficient medical care is today and how quickly improvements could be made. Robbie, let's begin with technology. How much of an impact has technology had on medical practice? Jeremy, big tech has had a surprisingly small impact on U.S. healthcare so far. Artificial intelligence, for example, it's been shown to outperform physicians in many complex tasks, like reading mammograms and analyzing chest x-rays. Yet AI remains woefully underused. Meanwhile, many, other, many have tried to spur operational efficiency using big data analytics, but care delivery remains as inconsistent and effective as ever. Perhaps the most telling example of big tech struggles in medicine, nine out of 10 healthcare organizations and individual doctors still rely on fax machines to exchange important patient information from one clinician to the next. But don't doctors want to be on the cutting edge of medicine? That depends. Depends on whether the technology elevates the physician status or not. Big expensive machines that increase the esteem with which doctors are held, they're embraced. Great example is the operative robot. This is a $2 million machine that resembles a video game on steroids. The doctor sits in an overstuffed chair, looking at a monitor and using a controller, and he remotely removes the device's eight robotic arms to allow surgery to happen through small incisions. Physicians love cool devices and the doctors who use them are accorded high status. The problem is that when researchers looked at outcome data, they found that using these robots lengthens the operative time. It increases the cost of surgery and contrary to what you might expect, there's no evidence that devices improve outcomes or reduce complications to any significant degree. In contrast, the computer technology that tells physicians what to do, either based on algorithms or artificial intelligence, it's often rejected by doctors, despite data that shows that doing so and following it exactly can improve outcomes and allow every physician to match the best practices of others. The challenge is that using these algorithms and AI-based solutions, that flattens the hierarchy of medicine. Clinicians other than doctors can now provide excellent medical care. And from a cultural perspective, doing so would lower the esteem with which physicians are held today, and that's something they don't want to see happen. How are technology companies trying to penetrate healthcare's $4.1 trillion market? As you mentioned at the start of this podcast, Apple, the world's seventh largest company, and Amazon, the world's second largest company, are both entering the world of medicine, but they're doing it in very different ways. One company 
is dutifully following and abiding by the old unwritten rules of healthcare technology. The other, it's poised to rewrite the healthcare rulebook altogether. What is the traditional unwritten rule of health technology? The unwritten rule of healthcare technology is that it's better to collaborate than compete with healthcare's power players, by which I mean the doctors, hospitals, and insurers. Now, you might think that it would be logical to collaborate with them rather than compete with them. I mean, after all, how are you going to impact medical care delivery without working with the people providing it and, paying, and working with the people who are paying for it? But the issue is whether you work with them to maintain the status quo or to disrupt it. As you know, in most industries, technology has been used to disrupt or displace the incumbents. That's how ride-sharing apps like Uber shook up the taxi industry. Online booking sites like Expedia changed travel. And streaming platforms like Netflix bested cable companies. In healthcare, however, the safest and most reliable path to success isn't to make waves. Companies know that they can profit and everyone can profit when everyone plays it safe and nice. Let's begin with Apple. Are they following or breaking this unwritten rule? Jeremy, late last month, Apple released a 59-page report. It called it, quotes, a snapshot of our work to advance health. It was supposed to be a big, bold announcement positioning Apple as a major force in healthcare. Critics pointed out that most likely it more closely resembled a desperate maneuver, a fickle attempt to convince shareholders that the company is keeping up with its rivals. The media backlash was swift, severe, and not what CEO Tim Cook must have envisioned three years ago when he said that Apple's greatest contribution to mankind would be health-related. A claim, by the way, that was conspicuously absent from this company's nearly 60-page most recent report. You know, for all of the report's lofty language, there was no evidence in it to suggest that Apple is on course to drastically improve American healthcare. Can you expand on your pessimism? Let me give you an example. In the report is the Apple Heart Study. This study aimed to prove that the Apple Watch can accurately detect atrial fibrillation. If you step back and look at it, the effort was a classic case of rule following. Apple aligned with a prestigious academic research partner, Stanford. Apple funded the massive research project, and it took a lengthy PR victory lap when the results came out. But independent researchers, they were less impressed with the findings. Some called it useless due to the study's poor demographic design. They pointed out a high dropout rate and the lack of follow-up. Critics pointed out that mass screening for atrial fibrillation might actually do more harm than good. And as for the watch itself, another study found that only 13% of people who were later diagnosed with atrial fibrillation had gotten an irregular heartbeat notice previously. Does that mean that this watch won't have any health value? It'll be a total dud? To be clear, you know, this watch someday may contribute to the growing arsenal 
of technology-based tools used to detect atrial fibrillation and used to detect other medical conditions. But being just one of many is not the kind of massive contribution Tim Cook promised years ago. From an economic perspective, Apple's approach could be very successful and could, could be maybe the best that exists. Remember, people don't buy an Apple Watch as a medical product. They buy it for the various ways it improves their lives. The watch provides a huge amount of information, including text messages throughout the day. It serves as a symbol of status for those who wear it. Adding a medical component, even with minimal value, that could contribute significantly to higher sales with no added cost of development and no great risk to the company. This disconnect between the objective measurement of health improvement and perceived value is fascinating. How big a factor is it? Jeremy, it can be huge. Let me give you a different example. The Fitbit and other similar wearable devices that are on the market today. These are by far the number one health devices purchased by consumers today. But at least so far, they only do two things. They tell you how far you've walked and how well you slept the night before. Now, when it comes to measuring steps, I'm a runner. I carry my smartphone with me and it gives me the exact same information. And for anyone who doesn't like the weight of carrying a smartphone, they could buy a $5 plastic pedometer. And when it comes to sleeping, who doesn't know if they slept well or poorly the previous night? And most importantly, if they didn't sleep well, what, are the, what does the Fitbit or the similar device do to help them sleep better the next night? The answer is nothing. No, this device sells because it solves a huge problem. It actually isn't a healthcare problem, although the product is promoted as a health device. No, it solves the December dilemma. Christmas or Hanukkah is coming. You want to buy a wonderful present for someone you love. You want it to be elegant, something the individual will carry at all times. And most importantly, it's got to cost between $150 and $200. The Fitbit fulfills this need exactly. For listeners who may be a bit older, in the 1990s, the equivalent was inline skates. They too sold for between $150 and $200, and they were associated with exercise and better health. The fact that half of the skates never came out of the box after December 25th, that was irrelevant. They had fulfilled their true purpose, although neither has made a major contribution to keeping people healthier and preventing disease for the future. Let's go back to Apple. What could the company do? Jeremy, what's most frustrating about Apple's modest dealings in healthcare is I know how capable the company is of doing more. You know, it has people, power, and products to revolutionize health monitoring, especially for the 30% of US adults living with two or more chronic diseases, diseases like diabetes, heart failure, or hypertension. People with chronic disease, they don't need another medical device that generates terabytes of health data, hundreds of EKG tracings, thousands of blood pressure readings, 
their doctors are already overburdened. They don't want this data clotting up their health records either. And for most patients and most people, the information generated, it's not particularly useful. What chronically ill patients need more than anything else, that's a device that tells them one of two pieces of information each day. Either you're okay. That means that your measurements, your heart rate, your blood glucose, et cetera, fall within an acceptable range that's been predetermined by your physician, or you're not okay. Something's off. You need to call your doctor to modify your medical management. What would be the impact of such a medical device? This type of technology, Jeremy, whether it was powered by AI or algorithmic tools, it could save thousands, maybe millions of lives without overwhelming doctors. It would dramatically change how healthcare is provided. You know, instead of medical care being provided intermittently and calendar-based, it would be continuous and focused on the specific health of each patient. Hypothetically, at the start of the year, physicians would meet with all of their patients and with the patient set goals for the management of the person's uh, problems across the subsequent year. Blood pressure for individuals with hypertension would be targeted to be in a certain range. And blood sugar in patients with diabetes aimed to be within certain numbers. Then the watch using AI technology and based on the parameters set by the doctor would inform the patient each day how she or she was doing. It could be programmed based on the doctor's plan to provide recommended changes in medications, to alter doses, to connect to educational videos or health coaches when needed. And when something was really problematic, they would advise the person to call the doctor's office and report what was happening immediately. In general, doctors today tell patients with chronic diseases, make an appointment and come back to my office every three or four months. They do it on a calendar basis. Continuous monitoring with AI changes that. It'll allow precision medical care to be delivered instead. It would empower patients far more than today. Across the year, people struggling to achieve good control might be in contact with their doctors monthly, while others who are under excellent control, whose bodies are responding exactly as expected by the physicians, they might not be seen more than once or twice a year because they do not need changes in their medication or their treatment. Customizing the care based upon how the individual is responding to the physician's recommendations. That is how medicine can and should be practiced. And this device could do it. It just doesn't do so as of yet. This approach sounds so much better than how medical care is provided today. What's the problem? Apple hasn't created such a smart monitoring device because doing so would make the company a provider of medical care. Were that the case, any error in measurement or analysis would subject Apple to significant medical legal risk. And that's something Apple isn't willing to do, even if the impact on people's health and medical risks would be exponentially better. Tim Cook knows that playing it safe and playing nice with healthcare's biggest players all but guarantees future profitability. But until Apple's willing to take risks 
and challenge the status quo it's unlikely to make a meaningful contribution to our nation's health. Let's shift to Amazon. How is it a different strategy? Jeremy, as we discussed in our last podcast, the same week that Apple released this underwhelming report, Amazon announced a $3.9 billion acquisition of One Medical, a membership-based primary care practice started in San Francisco has expanded to New York and 23 other metro markets. For Amazon, it was the latest in a series of big moves that constitute anything but playing nice with healthcare's existing powers. In recent years, the world's largest online retailer has launched its own pharmacy, its own telehealth and urgent care services, health tracking device, health data arm, cloud-based medical record service, and its own series of neighborhood health centers situated near employee hubs. As its healthcare services grow, Amazon has become an ever greater threat to drug makers, hospitals, doctors, and insurers. That sounds like a big move. What's your best guess about Amazon's long-term goal? The company now seems intent on doing in healthcare what it did in retail. Take it over. As you know, $2 out of every $5 that people spend purchasing goods online, they do that through Amazon. The overwhelming majority of Americans trust the company to deliver products to their home safely, reliably, and at a competitive price. If Amazon captures even 10% of healthcare's annual spending, it would double the company's annual revenue. And of course, that would be massive. Has Amazon tried to make inroads into healthcare in the past and had uh, to reverse the course? Jeremy, you're correct. Four years ago in 2018, Haven was founded as a nonprofit venture created for the employees of Amazon Berkshire Hathaway and J.P. Morgan Chase. It was disbanded after just three years. At the time, experts argued that the U.S. healthcare system was just too complex to be disrupted by Jeff Bezos and the other billionaires, CEOs Warren Buffett and Jamie Dimon. I disagree at the time. I believe that Bezos' vision for Haven was just much bigger and bolder than that of his executive counterparts. In fact, I wrote at the time that anyone who believes that Bezos' goal with Haven was to create a non-for-profit healthcare service just for employees, they probably also believe that Amazon only sells books. What about Amazon's most recent healthcare reversal? Jeremy, I think you're referring to Amazon's announcement that it was disbanding Amazon Care its virtual and in-person attempt to provide medical care for its employees and sell its services to other businesses. Again, rather than seeing this as a failure, I see it as an inevitable step in Amazon's long-term strategy. I mean, ask yourself, why would you continue to provide and promote this early stage endeavor when you've just purchased one medical with 188 clinics and 25 geographies? We're gonna see this same progression again and again. When there's a gap in medical care services, Amazon will find a way to fill it temporarily as best as it can. But when a long-term solution appears, the company will do its best to acquire it. Although it recently lost the battle to CVS to acquire Signify, Amazon is looking to be a, comp a comprehensive healthcare solution in every part of the industry, just as it has become in retail. What's the biggest hurdle Amazon will need to overcome going forward? For any new healthcare entrant, including Amazon, the hardest part is achieving scale. It's expensive, difficult, and time-consuming 
to attract new patients, hire physicians and build medical offices. With the one medical acquisition, Amazon scooped up almost 800,000 patients along with enough physicians and support staff to care for them. And with $60 billion in cash on hand, the company can continue to scale up quickly in years to come. Expect Amazon to also create business synergies, maybe bundling prime membership with enrollment in One Medical, co-locating One Medical offices in Whole Foods, or maybe leverage Amazon Web Services to bring telehealth and patient data into the 21st century. One or two million Amazon patients, that won't be enough. At 5 million members, Amazon could turn One Medical from a lost leader into a profit center. At 10 million members, Amazon could add specialists to One Medical's current primary care only model to booster both care coordination and operational efficiency. And at 50 million members, Amazon could become the nation's number one insurer and healthcare system. It would be capable of demanding lower costs from every player, including doctors, hospitals, and drug makers. Robbie, you teach strategy at the Stanford Business School. If you had to guess, what do you think Amazon's long-term strategy is? Well, Bezos' successor, Andy Jassy, understand that if Amazon can satisfy patients as well as it pleases current retail customers, healthcare disruption and domination are within reach. And if Amazon does, in fact, take a customer service approach to healthcare, we can expect that we'll negotiate the best prices on everything from drugs to doctor visits. We'll emphasize cost and information transparency, both of which, as you know, are solely lacking in healthcare today. And I might even introduce user feedback tools like the one to five star product reviews. The real question will be its business model. We'll try to sell convenient lower cost medical care on a fee-for-service basis, similar to what it does in retail, or will it focus on shifting healthcare from pay for volume to pay for value? Imagine if it went to self-funded businesses and promised not only to lower total costs, but to improve quality outcomes and keep employees happier. I could see Amazon investing heavily in primary care, selecting centers of excellence with the best outcomes and fewest complications for surgical care and offering world-class access to medical expertise 24 by seven through a fully integrated set of physicians connected through an electronic health record system that was far easier to use than the clunky ones that exist today. With Amazon's size and balance sheet, it could create what doesn't currently exist, a true healthcare system. And in doing so, it could simultaneously increase quality, improve access, and make medical care more affordable for tens of millions of Americans. In the end, if Amazon can scale up and make healthcare as easy as its beloved one-click buy now feature, the company will put every existing industry player on its heels. But of course, it will have competition. Already, there are other similarly sized behemoths like CVS, Walgreens, United Health moving in a similar direction, wanting to become the ultimate victor. The current providers of medical care, including physicians, hospitals, and drug companies, they're hoping that the future of medicine will remain similar to the past. I predict they'll be very disappointed. Let's shift to the healthcare disaster that's about to hit our nation. Can you provide an overview of the upcoming perfect storm? Jeremy, as you know, for decades, the US medical system has suffered from access and quality issues, outdated technologies and unaffordable prices. As we discussed in our last episode, this failing system now stands in the path of the perfect storm, a confluence of three mega forces. This healthcare inflation Medical costs will increase by double-digit rates starting in 2023. 
Should that figure hold, total health expenditures will double in just seven years from $4 trillion to over $8 trillion. Second, there's a nursing shortage. A recent study indicates that 90% of nurses may leave the profession within the year. They report unrealistic job demands, abusive patients, and lack of support. The burnout crisis is number three. Nearly half of physicians feel overworked and underappreciated. Many hospital-based doctors, these are anesthesiologists, ER physicians, and surgical specialists, they've turned to private equity firms for greater negotiating power. And once again, we're likely to see physicians exiting the marketplace and prices going higher as a consequence. Where will the impact be greatest to these three mega forces? These three mega forces will negatively impact every aspect of the healthcare system, but no area will be harder hit than our nation's 6,000 hospitals. Hospitals employ nearly 6 million people. They provide care for 30 million Americans each year, and they account for more than one third of all medical spending. Already 900 of them are at financial risk of closure, and that's threatening to leave millions of patients without access to life-saving medical care. These developments pose a grave risk to public health. And if they all strike at once and we don't do anything about it, they will be far deadlier than COVID unless our nation takes urgent action to avoid it. Like a category five hurricane on the horizon, there's no way to stop the storm, but hospital administrators can limit the damage and they can buy the time our nation needs to repair healthcare's broken foundation. What options do they have? The approaches of the past, Jeremy, they won't work. You know, hospital administrators today are trapped between two bad options. If they raise wages, hoping to retain doctors and nurses, they risk bankruptcy as their expenses go through the roof. But on the other hand, if they increase the workplace demands and they'll, what they'll see is that people are gonna quit leaving the hospital without enough doctors, nurses, and staff to meet patient needs. The pool of proposed solutions that policy experts have recommended. It's deep and wide. You know, they've talked about expanding healthcare coverage that would increase access to and maybe affordability of healthcare. They've talked about shifting physician payments away from today's fee-for-service methodology to a value-based model that would give caregivers incentives to keep people healthier and to avoid complications from chronic diseases and of course, they pointed to the clunky healthcare record systems that changing and improving them would reduce the frustration of doctors and nurses. And finally, they've recommended addressing the social determinants of health, which contributed more than 50% of medical outcomes, and that doing so would give our nation new life and better health. And all these ideas are great. Make no mistake, they are essential for the future. And we need to do many, if not most or all of them, but unfortunately, doing so will take time, probably a decade or more to implement. And we don't have that much time. These mega forces that are gonna impact our nation, they're gonna wreak havoc within two years. Given the time crunch, what can we do? Jeremy, for most of the hospital history, physicians couldn't do much for patients aside from offering basic medications and supportive therapy. These limitations kept the cost of care low and the job of providing it was relatively unstressed. 
By contrast, today's hospitals, they bustle with activity day and night as doctors deliver ever more complex treatments at ever higher prices. Yet despite all that has changed, most hospitals maintain the same operational model today as in the past. And as a consequence, medical care inside these facilities, it's inefficient, it's ineffective, it's chaotic, and it's dissatisfying for both clinicians and patients. Improving care delivery in American hospitals is where the solution must begin. Could you give me an example of what hospital leaders could do quickly to reduce costs, increase access, and improve professional satisfaction all at the same time? Sure. You know, one thing they could do is they could invest more in people. Let me give you an example. Surgeons perform most operations with impeccable speed and precision. Gallbladder removals and hernia repairs, they can be completed in 45 minutes. But when the surgery is done, inefficiency takes over. First, the nurse has to transport the patient to the recovery area. Then she or he must make sure the instruments are ready for the following case. And often before doing this, the nurse finds that the housekeeper has just started cleaning the operating room. In total, there can be a 45 minute delay between a 45 minute case. And these delays not only reduce the medical care the operative team can provide, they frustrate all the members, both the doctors and the nurses. Asking how to improve hospital operations, nurses pointed to streamlining processes and improving communication and coordination. You know, one way that operating rooms could become far more efficient would be to add an operating room technician to the surgical team. This person could support the clinicians and speed up the time between cases. While the surgeon's finishing one case, and the nurse is assisting the surgeon during that first case, this other person could ensure that the instruments sets that are gonna be necessary for the next case were already available. As soon as the first surgery is over, this person would help the anesthesiologist transport the patient to the recovery area and be there to bring in the next patient, freeing the nurse up to focus on the upcoming operation. And if or when the housekeeper was delayed, the technician could begin cleaning the room to minimize turnover time. Wouldn't hiring an additional person increase the cost of care? Jeremy, this is the heart of the issue. You know, at first glance, and to most hospital CEOs and CFOs, hiring another person feels financially excessive. But step back, and you can quickly see that it's far costlier and more wasteful to have four clinicians as a circulating nurse, a scrub nurse, an anesthesiologist, and a surgeon standing around. They're frustrated and they're waiting for these relatively straightforward tasks to be completed. Across an eight hour day of scheduled cases, if you could cut the turnover time, not the surgical time, the turnover time from 45 minutes to 20 minutes, the surgical team, rather than doing only five cases a day, could do seven. That's a 40% increase in productivity. It lowers hospital costs. It increases OR access. And it also would improve the professional satisfaction of all. Remember, healthcare professionals, they're mission-driven. And they all would rather be resolving patient problems than waiting idly by. The same approach, investing in people to reduce costs and increasing access, you can apply it to other parts of the hospital. Radiology, there are tests like CT studies that take but a few minutes 
with a large turnover time or procedures like colonoscopy in the various GI suites and other areas, these scheduled interventions can take less time to complete than the subsequent room turnovers. Investing in people is one way we can actually improve efficiency and lower cost. What's another approach that might help? A second opportunity would be to reduce the amount of non-patient care time that nurses and doctors have to do. You know, Jeremy, when you're racing around for an entire shift, what you don't realize is how much time you're actually wasting from the perspective of patient care. You know, a friend of mine who's a nurse told me that she always checks her, stop, her smartwatch before and after her shift. On average, she takes 10,000 steps each day. The reason is that most nurses are assigned to take care of patients whose rooms are on opposite ends of a long corridor. They can be separated by half the length of a football field. It takes almost two hours to walk 10,000 steps. That's two hours a day when nurses can't provide bedside care. So why not assign each nurse to care for patients in adjacent rooms rather than one scattered across the inpatient unit? and make available a person similar to the one we talked about in the OR, who can then bring the various supplies that the patient needs that generates two more hours for the nurse to provide excellent in-person, hands-on medical treatment. How might this concept be applied to the work that doctors do? A good example of that would be physicians in the emergency department. The way patients are assigned to doctors in emergency rooms this is in general, is based upon their order of arrival rather than where the patient's gonna get care. Let's say there's two doctors both working in the ER, they alternate admissions. And depending upon the layout of the ER, this can be very inefficient and dangerous. Hospitals could eliminate doctor wasted time, the time it takes going from one part of the ER to the other by assigning one of the emergency room doctors to the most critically ill patients who are usually located in one section of the ER while the second physician could treat the minor problems that come in that day, like sprains and lacerations. This not only would lead to more efficient care, it would save more lives, since there would always be a physician keeping eyes on the high-risk patients at all times. Of course, the approach would have to be adjusted based on the size of the ER and the number of doctors working there at any given time. But the principle of minimizing steps and maximizing hands-on medical care, that holds even in the smallest of ERs. What about a third set of opportunities? Jeremy, increasingly medical care is provided by teams of clinicians. On most of these teams, the physicians and the nurses work really hard, but the teams themselves don't perform as well as they could. The more the members of a medical team work together, and the more often they treat the same types of problems, the more skills they gain, the more efficient they become and the better the outcomes they achieve. But even in the 50% of US hospitals that belong to a healthcare system, this means that they have more than one hospital in their network, in their system of hospitals and inpatient facilities that they run, there's a huge duplication of clinical service. For example, in one Silicon Valley community, three hospitals offered virtually identical services. They all had cardiac surgery, neurosurgery, and cancer care. 
because of their close proximity, none had sufficient patient volumes in any one of these three areas to achieve clinical excellence. But imagine if each of the three hospitals focused on one of the three clinical services, then they each could become a center of excellence in that particular discipline to which they were addressing. When I was the CEO in Kaiser Permanente, we applied this concept of surgery for patients with esophageal cancer. This operation often leads to complications due to the esophagus's very thin wall and the tension placed in the repair. But by creating a small cadre of physicians and nurses to do these highly specialized operations, the complication rate plummeted close to zero with the average length of a patient's stay cut in half. And rather than feeling burdened, the physicians and nurses working in that environment were among the happiest I'd ever seen. In the end, Jeremy being part of a winning team builds professional satisfaction, even when treating more patients. Each of these operational improvements sound reasonable. In fact, it's hard to understand why change hasn't already begun. What's next, Robbie? Jeremy, that will depend on whether hospital leaders take action in anticipation of the three mega forces where they decide to wait. These operational improvements can't be implemented by fiat. Hospitals will need to sit down, listen to, and work with the people providing medical care. And that's something they rarely have been willing to do in the past. Jeremy, I predict that those who step forward will discover and uncover dozens of other time-saving, waste-reducing, efficiency-driving, and professionally satisfying solutions that can be implemented quickly, but I believe that they must hurry for time is running out. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Fixing Healthcare is now a weekly podcast posted each Tuesday night. Follow us on Fixing Healthcare on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's newest series, Diving Deep with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.